social ladies. All the 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 social ladies. Now put your phones up. Welcome to All the Social Ladies with CEO of Likeable Media, Carrie Kerpin. Because if you're social, then you really should be tweeting us. If you're social, then you really could be leading us. You can't let what people say it's so mysterious. Because you're social, you're a leader and you're serious. Now, Carrie Kerpin. Hi, I'm Carrie Kirpin, and welcome to another episode of All the Social Ladies. On today's show, I'm speaking with Jennifer Brown, who is the president and founder of Jennifer Brown Consulting. Jennifer started her company in 2005 and specializes as a consultant in leadership and management, diversity, communications, and creativity and innovation to Fortune 500 companies. Her firm's guiding principle is to transform human potential by creating more inclusive and therefore innovative workplaces while aligning individual performance with organizational results. I also met Jennifer at the Smart CEO Future 50 Awards, of which she was a winner, and we got to celebrate together. I can't wait for you all to meet her because it's going to be an amazing interview today. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you, Carrie. Thanks for such a great intro. Of course, of course. Well, you know, Jennifer, I look at your career for me as somebody who's who's an entrepreneur. Started a little bit after you um, in the entrepreneur space. I just think that you have such an impressive career. Tell me your story a little bit. How did you get to where you are to advising these huge companies? I had a dream. Um, I actually, I started um, in this field actually as a freelance trainer. And so I spent a couple of years as an independent consultant roving around teaching different, what they call soft skills topics in corporate training classrooms all over the world. And as a hired gun, you know, I'd show up and facilitate the discussion and the topic on any given day. And, um, you know, I started after a while to realize how much is really broken in all of these poor people's work lives, um, how disengaged they were, how marginalized they felt, how they weren't able to make their best contribution. And um, one thing led to another. I started to really form an opinion about what was broken, how to fix it, and realize that we could be, I could start a company that could be a part of sorting that out and increasing their skills to speak up for themselves and their confidence to go for what they want, but also to increase the organization's readiness to really hear their potential and to really take advantage of it. Wow. So you, it sounds like you listened and you formed this point of view and it was broken and, and you would come up with a way for how to fix it. How did you have the confidence to know that your way was a great way to do it? Was it just through experience and doing it over and over? Because I find sometimes when I, as an entrepreneur, come up with a concept or, okay, I'm going to do this method or I'm going to try this. It takes me a while to build up the confidence to do it. I'm just, I'm really impressed by your story and your ability to do that. Did that confidence come naturally? Yeah. You know, I've been a performer my whole life. So, uh, you know, I have memories of being four and five years old and wanting to be up on the stage desperately. So um, I've always had a, a lot of confidence um, and I loved speaking with, I think, people who are, you know, technically or on paper more powerful than I am and, and being very comfortable in that environment. But I think um, 
but I think as women, I've noticed that it's, it's, we, we try to make sure that we can promise that we know something well enough to really position ourselves as experts. And we wait in order to make it as perfect as possible. And knowing that that dynamic goes on for women very differently than men, I think, who don't have any problem saying, you know, I'm ready to do that. I can take that on. I know more than you know about that. And I can advise you. I recognized that, you know, I know enough. I know enough. You know, I have seen enough and my instincts are good. My intuition is good. And, you know, I do believe that my vision for what needs to change is powerful enough that I can stand behind it and really sell it. I think it also helped that I had some clients who got on board very early with me and really believed in me and said, you know, you do have a vision for something bigger and you are the right person to bring this vision to corporate America. And that gave me a huge shot in the arm in addition to obviously very important capital um, in order to start the company. And that's what I did. And I haven't really looked back. I've tried to trust my instincts and intuition, as I said, and not, you know, have a crisis of confidence or fear that I don't have all the pieces or there's something that I haven't done before. Um, because I, I believe that, you know, some of us who need to leap before we look, we, that's a very powerful place to, to, to come from, you know, and we have a, a fresh perspective that is missing in the current dialogue. And I, I believe that that's what I had. I love that. And it's such great advice for women who are aspiring entrepreneurs. Yeah. I, I love to hear that. Yeah. So so tell me a little bit about what was broken. So what was broken when you got there? Well, what I discovered uh, was that so many don't have a voice in the current workplace. The way that workplaces are structured is very hierarchical. Um, I think it's from the 1950s. Frankly, it's yes. a military model, um, yes. the way that companies are structured. So it's not great for um, ideas to flow up the chain, as we all know. Um, um, there are, um, especially Gen Y and sort of fresh perspectives, again, have no channel in which to live and be heard by the people who have the decision-making power. And, um, and in addition to that, I think the culture of the workplace is so important to to enable people to feel comfortable enough to bring their full selves to work. And the more I realized how many people were like managing their identity, their ideas, their background, whether it be non-traditional, um, you know, maybe they're a woman in a male-dominated environment, maybe they're LGBT in a heterosexual environment, right. maybe they're um, not a U.S. national, you know, and they work with a U.S.-based team. You know, all of those disconnects that can happen in a diversifying world and workplace they serve to disconnect people from, I think, bringing their extra, what we call discretionary effort, to right. work. And when that happens, the people in charge should really be concerned because it means that you're not getting the best contributions from people, um, and you're not getting everything. You're not getting your money's worth. Um, right. It and probably this is takes actually a toll. fixable because if you pay attention to culture, you, as an executive leader, are noticing these things. You know, you're you have a finger on the pulse. You're looking around the table. You're saying, "What about how we look at the top?" Doesn't look doesn't uh, welcome all different kinds of talent into this organization, and it doesn't keep them. Like, even if we can get them, can we really keep them? Can we grow them? You know, can we grow this next generation of leaders? If people opt out because they don't like what they see or hear or they don't feel that they can be themselves, they're going to leave, and that's, a, that's bleeding productivity. So we're, we're really living in that space trying to fix that. 
I would imagine that it takes a lot of energy for an employee to have to kind of feel like they need to hide who they are. It probably takes a lot more energy than than it should. If you if you were able to actually be your kind of authentic self at work a little bit more, you would be able to have more energy to do great things at work, I would imagine. Exactly. And I learned this really from the LGBT community specifically, mm-hmm. you know, who always talks about, you know, come Monday morning, you have to leave all, you have to change pronouns about who you spent your weekend with, wow. or you have to change the examples of, I don't know, the community organizations you're a part of, because you're always managing, you know, what can I, what's acceptable here and what's going to limit my career. And, you know, just that dance that you have to do and the mental energy and the choices you have to make, in addition to being a rock star, hopefully at your job, it's a lot to handle. And women do this all the time. We calibrate how we dress and how we come across. If you spend your entire day being the only one in the room, you know, you are constantly sort of, you're double timing in terms of where your attention needs to go. And I believe that that really impacts your ability to give your best, most authentic, most powerful gifts professionally. So how do you, how do you approach that? How do you approach when gender plays a role like that and you're looking at diversity and inclusion? How can you impact change at such a large organization? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> it's an, it's a challenge that I keep coming back to, uh, you know, and I think it's hard. These are like, in some cases with some of our clients, it's a 300,000 person organization globally. Right. Um, you have to, ideally, you're working with the top of the house, which is a must. Um, even if it's top of a, of a division, maybe not the ultimate senior leadership of a company that large. Yep. But you're dealing with the decision makers and who are largely men yep. um, in, in today's world. And I think bringing awareness through focus group data, through examples, through statistics. I mean, there's a lot of different ways through personal stories. Sometimes you can capture somebody's imagination and their heart. Um, there's a lot of different ways you can um, kind of levers that you can pull depending on who's sitting across from you and what really motivates them. Sometimes, you know, CEOs will be very motivated by what other CEOs are doing. You know, Mm -hmm. they don't like to be second place or third place. And that's where some of those lists that we have in the diversity inclusion world about best companies for women, et cetera, really come into play. Um, But again, you you have to have like 15 tools in your toolkit. Um, and, And for that moment that you're sitting there in front of that executive thinking, how can I get this person on board and to really see the light and understand what's being lost from his or her organization because this dynamic is going on? And I think, you know, if you can explain that, they will get on board. I mean, it's 2014. You know, I think you'd have to living under a rock not to understand that there's so much changing in your organization, and it's really hard to keep up with, you know, your markets, your consumers, the buying patterns um, that you're trying to capitalize on, products and services, et cetera. So a lot of people know this is a problem, and they know that they're not good at it. And so I, I feel when I walk in, I don't have as hard of a battle these days that I and maybe a lot of the people whose shoulders I stand on have had in the past in terms of making what we call the business case for diversity. Right. So they know they need it. Yeah. Which is helpful. And then I think, so you start with the senior team. And then I also think the bottoms up dynamic has to be joined with the tops down. So the bottoms up dynamic is like the work we do with employee networks. So the women's network, the LGBT network, the people with disabilities, the multicultural talent networks, these are all kind of junior and mid-level employees who are pushing up in the system, trying to get their voice heard, to build a better work environment for themselves, to um, be able to recruit more from their community to come in to, you know, their employer of choice, hopefully, um, and to help equip their company to sell better 
into their communities. So to approach, you know, a diverse market with very specific products and services that are going to appeal to that community. Um, because there's been a lot of missteps in multicultural marketing and sales when a company has identified, uh, I, I don't know, a city or a ethnicity that they want to go after and they, with products that are really going to resonate with them perhaps around like a cultural special cultural time of year. And, you know, companies don't know how to do this very well, right. but the employees know, right. you know, and so we help set up the mechanisms for bottoms up feedback and idea flow um, so that if you join these two pieces together, then we just have to worry about the middle, which is the middle manager level, which is sort of the last frontier for a lot of us in this work, because they just don't, they seem to kind of be disconnected from both of these conversations and feel sort of the most pressure to just get the work done in whatever way yeah. is fastest. So we, we all kind of collectively struggle with the middle, the middle manager, you know, how to reach them, where are they, what do they care about, how can we help encourage them to take this seriously. They're hearing it from the top, they're hearing it from the bottom. But, you know, again, they have their own learning that they've got to go through. So um, that's kind of how we look at it in really simple terms. So it sounds like it's all about facilitating a great dialogue between kind of upper and lower coming together to really understand kind of and hearing from people who are actually executing and, and mm-hmm. in the trenches day in and day out and understanding how they feel and what they're what's important to them. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's really great. In In terms of. Uh, the the companies that you're working with, are they looking at or do they discuss the social media presence of employees? Is that a concern to them about what they're saying about the companies or anything along those lines? Yeah, I think that's such a fascinating area. Um, I hear different stories. You know, it depends on if the company really understands transparency yep. and is very committed to authenticity and kind of admitting who they are and who they aren't and where they have problems and challenges. Um, If the leadership is really committed to that, then you'll see whether it's in recruiting or um, other blogs about, you know, what it's like to work there, um, that they will be, they won't be paranoid and try to shut it down. They'll actually be very inquisitive and curious and seeking that information so that they can then in turn create better systems internally so that that doesn't happen in the future. So they have a a culture of continuous improvement. Like, uh, you know, Ernst & Young does this well, and I remember a recruiter friend telling me, you know, we left the negative feedback about our onboarding process um, up. We left it up because we wanted to make sure that people knew that we saw it, we aren't afraid of it, and we want to tackle it and and improve it. So there are some companies that have that kind of attitude, and then obviously there's many, many more, I think, that still try to maintain a veneer that is created versus one that might be really, you know, true for employees and their everyday experience. And that, you know, our consulting does touch that as well to say, you know, you need this information in order to appear and be hopefully responsive and resilient and adaptive that to show that you're really listening um, to what's being said about you, because it's not, you're not going to hear, you know, the, the feedback through the usual channels that you grew up using. You know, it's a whole different world. So it just depends on how courageous the management is about really, really wanting to create um, a better environment where they get great feedback. And even if they don't, they're like, you know, we're a work in progress. And I think that's kind of a new muscle for companies. I think they want to appear perfect in the market. And, um, you know, I think it's sort of counter to be vulnerable to that is kind of counter to what we've expected executives and companies to show in the past. 
Absolutely. I know we talked a lot about transparency within organizations. Do you think it's essential for an organization to be transparent? Do you think that's a core value that everyone needs to have? Or do you think it's something because social media obviously has unveiled this whole new level of transparency that right that that never existed before. It's like this veil's mm-hmm. lifted and everyone can see what everyone else is doing. Yeah. Is it important for corporations to be transparent? Yeah, well, about certain things, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Obviously, not about not everything, um, right? You know, the sort of elements of the business side that the you know create sauce. problems with competitors right. and in the industry. But, but I think anything having to do with human capital, um, you know, warts and all. It's interesting. I, I think when you hide your numbers, for example, like if you're bleeding women, you know, at a certain level, or some industries have a real problem with this, or a problem with people of color, you know, retention issues. Wow. Um, or worse, you know, lawsuits and and really messy realities. I don't know. I personally think it's better to say here are our numbers and here here is what we think about them. You know, if it's not a good story, what are you doing to address that story? I think goes a longer way these days, given what I think audiences, whether they're potential hires or customers or suppliers and vendors or current employees. I mean, that says a lot about the the integrity and the courage of a company to say, you know, we don't do this right, and that's not acceptable. So I think there aren't that many companies that are willing to do that. Um, I think they're afraid of showing their metrics. Um, they're afraid of lawsuits and other things that can happen when you do show your metrics. So it's a it's a tricky line to walk, but I think the trend is to be more transparent. It's at least the CEO internally can talk about the problems, even if you don't show the numbers. You know, everyone's aware of them. All you need to do is just look around you and realize you are the only you know fill in the blank. Or organizations are ninety percent you know, male-dominated. I keep using gender examples, but yep. you can apply those. Um, That's okay. This is I, all I the social I think it goes ladies. a long way from a, from a goodwill perspective. It, the internal communications that are said are, you know, are they honest? Are they real? Do, and it, are things addressed? Like when I've heard in focus groups that, you know, losing one woman from the senior team or one person of color who is an executive, it has just giant ripple effects. I mean, yes. everybody talks about it. Everybody notices it. Everybody imbues it with all of this meaning, usually negative. And, you know, for somebody not to say anything about it um, is almost worse than um, is worse than actually calling it out, you know, and saying that it's a problem that, you know, she was, you know, a leader for us and visible. And I know a lot of people looked up to her. She mentored a lot of people. You know, what does this mean that our team can't hold on to, I mean, it's, 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 it's a little bit, um, it's a little egg on people's faces to realize like, you know, why are we losing these kinds of leaders? And it it may not have have nothing to do with the company culture. It might've been an incredible opportunity that they left for, but I think to be able to talk about it in an authentic way and in a vulnerable way actually is counterintuitive, but it goes a long way in terms of your workforce. I totally agree. It's actually exactly how we advise people to handle and businesses to handle their experiences in social. Like when you mess up or you have an issue, owning up to it, saying that it's there and what you're planning to do. Exactly. Because quite honestly, if you don't do it, it's already out there in social media anyway because employees and and people in general are talking on social media. So I think that it's a very, very important thing to look at for companies. I I think transparency has become increasingly Mm -hmm. uh, needed, and I definitely see the trend. The, uh, great. That's that's helpful. That's yeah. a great analogy. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of you being an entrepreneur, tell me a little bit about how for your business you're using social media. Yeah. So I love social media. Um, I have 
gosh, I'm trying to uh, push up into 4,000 followers on Twitter. Awesome. Um, yep. And I, uh, I, diversity inclusion actually is a really hot topic in social media um, under the hashtags of inclusion or diversity or um, LGBT women, yep. all the different communities, if you will, of interest and practice and identity. Um, and so how we really tapped into those conversations, um, largely by sharing what's in the news, um, interesting stories, stories that are pertinent to diverse talent, um, stories that are pertinent to the workforce and the workplace of the future. So we try to really, we try to engender that conversation through our, our use of tweets and LinkedIn um, and gather the community of practitioners to JBC um, in whatever way they're comfortable. So some people love LinkedIn, some are more Facebook people, some love Twitter, but not, not many, believe it or not. That's kind of a small really? crew. Um, but yeah, we try to, we just try to, to, to foster those dialogues. And I think we get more followers through people, obviously, that are interested in these topics. And, and we discover, you know, new talent for ourselves, new potential clients, although the corporate world is not that present, for example, on Twitter, um, which I think is sort of the cutting edge tool in all yep. of this. And yep. I, and I spend probably the most time on myself, um, especially live tweeting at conferences and things like that. Definitely. But, um, I think it's really helped us not necessarily on the sales front, but from a thought leader perspective yes. to really have a voice in the dialogue, um, which I think ultimately maybe several steps away from that leads to sales, but it's not necessarily a direct correlation. Oh, for sure, especially because in your in your industry, like you said, you have to your client is at the top, right? So it's either the C-suite or it's the head of a division or something along those lines. And so their use of social media is a little bit different than others, you know, uh-huh. who are in the space. Definitely that makes uh-huh. sense. That makes sense to me. But establishing yourself as a thought leader, um, particularly in the areas of diversity and inclusion is something that I think overall it sounds like has benefits for you. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if for no other reason, then I see who else is out there doing really important work. I mean, if you utilize hashtags in this space, I'll see who, uh, what, what everybody's up to. And that's so important to calibrate our message to see, you know, who's talking about the same things we're talking about. And, you know, could they help build JBC, you know, in various, you know, connections to us or relationships or arrangements with us. But I think even bigger than that, it's really nice to be able to feel that there's a community that is having these conversations because we get isolated in this work and you can kind of drive yourself crazy feeling like, you know, am I Don Quixote, like tilting at windmills here? I mean, is corporate America ever really going to change? Right. And there are some of us out there who are just diehards. You know, we believe this and I have no idea why. It's not a practical business to be in. It's not the kind of business that you can have massive growth and put a lot of money in your pocket. You know, we all do it out of passion. And I think for me, it's just wonderful to be you know, retweeted and mentioned and see what else, you know, people are writing and what they're producing um, that is adding to the conversation and hopefully taking it to the next level. I, I think there's a huge, we need community too, because we're all doing this work all over the world, but it can be very isolating because there's not that actually many of us. Oh, you bet. I would imagine it. I I found Twitter to be such a great connector of people when you have things in common and you and you especially when when that area is very focused and you need to find other people just like you. I think it's yeah. Um, you have to look far far. Yes, afield. yes, like, yes. It's funny. Most of my team does not live in New York City. You know, and really? you think I'd be able to create an entire company out of the talent here, but that's not the way I've grown the company. I've had to grab talent wherever they are. 
You know, wow. and so it's resulted in having this U.S. national team. Everyone is like one or two people in each city. And so I think that that, that breeds a little bit of isolation, too, and sort of a stronger need even more for community. That's so great. And do you use social media to connect with your employees? You know, um, <laughs> some of my employees are not uh, of the generation where yeah. they're heavily heavily uh, utilizing some of the tools. It's interesting. Um, My team is very age diverse. Um, A lot of my delivery folks are older than I am. I'm 43. Um, And I think that blended with with sort of the field. The DNI field is not big on the social media front generally, especially Twitter. I just don't think that's sort of, to me, a a tool that maybe Gen X uses a little bit more and especially Gen Y and not so much baby boomers in my field. So I notice a generational difference in my team even in terms of how they utilize the different tools. I'm probably the most proactive Twitter user in my entire team, including the younger millennials. Um, And I also just use it really professionally. I'd like, I like to use it as like a sharing mechanism for thought leadership and current events and really to tap into the professional community that I relate to so much. But, you know, everybody gets their needs met in a different way. It's been interesting to watch. I actually think what you said just now was really interesting that the DNI community isn't yet hasn't fully adapted to social. So in establishing yourself as a thought leader, it's pretty great to have you out there already and being like one of the first. I think that that's wonderful for your organization as as ultimately people will adapt and grow towards social media becoming kind of this standard. I um, hope so. Yeah. yeah, it's weird because I'll sit in diversity conferences and there will be, I don't know, 500 people there and there will be about 10 of us on Twitter. Wow. Which is so curious because I just don't think that happens that often wow. in the rest of the world. And I, I don't know why that is. I, I just, I think Twitter's a, a, maybe during an event as well, people just want to be present and paying attention. But when I sit in a room, I'm always thinking about the audience kind of behind me and outside of those four walls and yes. thinking, well, I have the privilege to be here live today and listening to this, but how am I turning around and making sure that I'm sharing it out and, and, and kind of filtering, you know, what I think is important that's coming out of this, you know, dialogue that I'm watching, et cetera. And I, I think there's just um, the nature of our audiences is that there are people in far-flung locations in an office somewhere, for example, who feel, you know, very alone and they can't, they're in Asia or they can't connect in um, to the conversation and they, they might be really passionate about this stuff. So Twitter is like an ideal tool to enable them to feel like they can be part of that dialogue when really they may not have a lot of support locally at all, you know, and they, and they may be looking for community and, and need it desperately. Um, you know, people will say they, they're just so happy that we exist. And when they meet me, they say, you're doing really important work and it's made a real difference to me, you know, in the, in the place that I live, in the world, the working world that I'm in every day in my daily reality, just to know that a company like yours exists and that somebody like you is doing this work, you know, gives me hope to do, you know, do it for another day. <laughs> you know, that, and that answer is what's broken, right? That's, that's a, that's a big um, call for me and, and definitely reinforces the mission of why, you know, JBC really continues to be so important and our work is not done. That's 
incredible. And I think what a way to just a reminder to you of the impact that you have. I have the solution, mm. which is that we need to get you to speak at a social media conference on I diversity. Yes. So we have you speak at a social media conference on diversity and inclusion, and then your voice will be reverberated. And then we can impact the diversity and inclusion community because you'll have all of these people sharing. That oh, is like my it. big like plan. I'm, I'm on it. I'm on it. Tell okay. me, so you speak, tell me a little bit about um, what you speak about and how, how you engage an audience when you're speaking. Oh, I love, um, I like doing panels and moderating uh, dialogues and mm-hmm. interviews mm-hmm. the most. Mm-hmm. Um, I probably prefer that over keynote yes. in terms of format. Yes. Um, and I also like, believe it or not, I, I love big audiences, but smaller audiences are wonderful because you can do Q&A and a roving mic and play Oprah. Yes, I love to play Oprah. <laughs> um, and I, I really enjoy that. I think w- when I did my master's degree, uh, one of the core principles of adult learning theory is that 90% of the knowledge that you need to facilitate lives in your participants and lives in your audience. Wow. So I've always been acutely aware of trying to break the wall down between the stage and the audience. Um, um, and really, you know, and that, that's why I love, like, the ideas of live tweets and um, things like Twitter fall and other ways of gathering questions on a rolling basis. Because then and I could have a great plan and a list of questions and, a, um, and everybody's prepared, but I think it risks sounding scripted or not organic and in the moment. And so I'm always thinking about what's on the audience's mind. Um, what do they care about? What are their pain points that these leaders that I have on the stage can really address? And I hate to be in a vacuum when I work that way. So the more I can actually physically get into the audience, and if I can't physically get in the audience, then I love to use some of, have some fun with some of those polling tools they have over text. I mean, there's all sorts of neat things you can use now where you can be virtually listening, yes. know, even if you can't physically be putting a microphone in somebody's face. So that's my, that's my preferred Style. Yeah, I think that an interactive speaker, you know, somebody who really is engaging with the audience is, is almost always preferred over somebody who talks at you, you know, versus mm-hmm. talking with you. I feel the same way, by the way, in doing these podcasts when I do interviews, you know, I always have a set of questions and then I, I just feel like the best way to talk to somebody is to just have a dialogue. And I, yeah. I think that's for sure. Like when I'm listening to you and I hear all of these stories, obviously it leads me not to the next scripted question, but to what I want to ask you <laughs> I, about your I've existence. Noticed. Yes, <laughs> I know. I, love, I said, that's it. I just have to talk to her. I love it. Um, so, okay. So you're interactive speaking that it's fabulous. And do you, and so you've been using a lot of the polling options and that, that type of stuff. And do you see any other opportunities to use? I think it sounds like Twitter's really your favorite to use um, in any type of mm-hmm. interactive presentation. Anything you're looking at like that is to, is to use Twitter in that way with tweets. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I, so I tweet, I retweet, I, I lurk a little bit yeah. because I, what I'm really interested in, in every event is not just what's being said, but also how is the crowd reacting? Yeah. Because um, to me, it's an exercise in calibration and, and being sensitive to the zeitgeist of yep. the discussion, yep. you know, and thinking about, you know, are we ready to have this conversation? Are people agreeing with the speaker? Are they challenging them? Um, how are they? How are they reacting? I love the process of, um, I think, locating myself and my feedback in the in the context of what everyone else is is kind of sharing, because I think that as a consultant, you have to not just barrel through the work, but you have to, what they say is meet the client where they're at. So you have to be very exquisitely sensitive to how, you know, where are the boundaries of the conversation? Where can you push? 
where shouldn't you push? I'm always thinking if I were coaching the speaker, you know, how could they have been more resonant with the yes. audience? Did they yes. know their audience? You know, did yes. they really know them? Yes. And I mean, that kind of feeds into when we prepare executives to go up on stage, um, you know, anything can happen. They can be very wooden. They can sound scripted. They can sound inauthentic, but they don't know why. Um, or they can come across as this incredible champion for things like diversity and win over, you know, you've seen like hundreds of people just say, oh my gosh, he or she is like the best CEO I've ever seen speak. I mean, they really get it. So I'm always watching and listening to see, you know, what, how do people make up their mind about that? And then how can I take that information then and use it as a benchmark in my other work to say, well, I saw so-and-so speak at this event and here was the reaction online and um, here were the things that really resonated with people, and then I can take that to other leaders and help use that as fodder in my coaching. Um, and I think that is a very effective way to sort of bring the bottom up, if you will, of the, the leaders that are just getting on board with this and saying, okay, so how do I show that I'm supportive? Um, and there's ones that do it great, and there's ones that many, many more <laughs> that need to be taught. Um, <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, you're there to teach them. So that's what that's it. <laughs> that's right. I hear I hear the overall theme from you just of the real importance of listening, whether you're listening to other people at a conference on Twitter, whether you're listening to the employees um, at an organization where you're coaching, whether you're listening to the C-level executives. I, I hear um, from you the importance of listening. And I, I, I think that's key uh, in your role. Yeah. And I would add one more thing I thought of is What's really neat, to your point of getting me to speak at a social media conference, is, yes. is we are ready and I'm ready to speak outside of the DNI world. Yep. So I think what I'm also listening for, and you know, so a lot of my followers have come from different disciplines entirely, yes. and I am li- I'm listening and watching for how can we take the DNI message to the broader audience. Like, are we ready to do that? What would it sound like? And so I'm constantly seeing where are my followers coming from? How are they connecting into what I'm tweeting about that resonates with them? Because to me, that's a roadmap for how to bring this to the mainstream because it's time. I mean, we've been preaching to the choir for a long time and getting each other in a room. And I love that. I mean, I can be in that all day long because, you know, you're with like-minded people, which is so important for our souls and, you know, sustain ourselves, which is so hard in this work as it is, you know, but I think we have to go forward into new frontiers. And, and I I like to see who is actually, who do these concepts appeal to? And is it people that are unexpected or industries or, or professional professionals or different kinds of jobs and careers that I hadn't even really thought about that could resonate with this, this work? How could we take it to those audiences and create, you know, I don't know, a bigger platform for the discussion, um, influence corporations to do the right thing, because like more and more stakeholders in more like, you know, parallel worlds care about it, you know, because I think all of this contributes to me being able to make the business case, you know, that it's a 360, it's sort of inevitable, you know, it's like, look at all of these people that now are talking about this. It's not just your HR team, you know, it's your, you know, if I could, if I could bring that data to yeah. them, I think that it makes makes my case even stronger. I'm telling you, I think it's a, I think it's a good concept. I, I definitely yeah. think you can do that, and yeah. so uh, I look for. I will be there cheering you on for sure, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Jennifer, you have any advice for young women entrepreneurs setting out in their their first step in the entrepreneurial waters? Give them some good advice. Oh man, I would say uh, it's a it's a dichotomy, right? You want to. Um, 
you want to make the money that you are due and you want to set your prices high, you know, whatever you're selling. You want yes. to make sure that you are, um, you're a, you are a privilege to work with, you know, and that access is not necessarily always easy because, you, you know, you've got something really important and really unique. But at the same time, I believe very strongly in the give before you get concept. Yes. Um, that has been huge for me in doing business development and building our clients. And, I mean, getting on a plane, going, saying yes to presenting, um, whatever help somebody needs, you know, that gets our name out there, that gets my thought leadership out there, um, and not asking necessarily to be paid, you know, where yes. it's not, that's not important, you know, because yes. the, the, it's so, so much of a larger opportunity. So I think um, you, you can get trapped in giving before you get and, and sort of let it run amok. Um, so I think you've got to really carry both sort of opposite principles, you know, that you are worth a lot of money, <laughs> um, whether you know that or not, you know, likely what you're building is unique. It's uniquely yours. It doesn't exist, hopefully, because you've got a unique take on it. Yep. Um, and so you have to sort of bear that in mind as you build your products and services and your pricing. But at the same time, you have to really, you've got to invest in a community in order to rise up through it. You know, you that's, that's what I've spent a lot of time doing and, and, um, you just never know when that goodwill will come back to you at a moment when you really need it. So I think that, and women need to kind of, you know, master those two domains. But I think we, we do both of those things well. So that's it's, the good news. <laughs> it's when you master the balance, right? It's yeah. you give before you get. But when it's time to charge, charge what you're worth. Yeah, and don't be afraid of don't charging be afraid. what you're worth. And make sure you know what other people are charging and make sure that you don't just benchmark against other women-owned businesses in your field, but men as well. I think, you know, we all look at it very differently. We come at this in a, from a different place. To my point way earlier, um, I think I have noticed women will play smaller, uh, whether it's a combination of, uh, you know, lack of confidence or, you know, I can't dare ask for that amount or, you know, who do I think I am? I mean, and the world will try to tell you, like, you know, are you ready for that? You know, are you worth that? I've had people say to me, you know, who – how do you know that you're supposed to be this thought leader that's like tackling changing the workplace? You know, who it's sort of a who do you think you are? You, you know, could you really even do that? Is that realistic? You know, and I say, well, it, 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 I, when I heard that for the first time, I thought maybe it is too big. Maybe it is too bold. Right. Maybe, you know, and then I said, wait a minute, hold on. <laughs> yeah, it's my mission because I'm deciding that that's going to be my mission and my vision. Yeah, and it sounded if I like. I say it, it will be so, you know, it, and, and lo and behold, it is so. So I think there's a power of intention here and there's a power of of saying, you know, who you are and really picking a bold vision that scares you because you don't know if you're ever going to achieve it. You don't know how you're going to achieve it. Maybe you're just a solopreneur, but you need to pick something that's bold, that's exciting, that you can become known for, you know, tweet about it, talk about what it means to you. Um, and other people will be inspired by that. And I think you just need to be very careful that you don't sort of trim yourself, that you really allow yourself to expand into that and don't listen to any naysayers who say it's not practical, it'll never happen, <laughs> uh, you know, are you crazy? Or there's 15 others that are, that are doing this. You know, yeah. you, that's the kind of talk that you need to be careful about listening too much to. I love if you say it, then it will be so. Oh, it has it's, happened in my life. That trust is, me. That is awesome. <laughs> it's kind of that's freaky. awesome, Jennifer. Be careful the intention that you put out uh, there because it will likely happen. I love it. Well, I'm, <laughs> I'm so happy you could join us today, Jennifer. Thank me you too, so Karen. much. Thanks for a great interview. I no enjoyed it. No problem. You're a total inspiration. So thank you thank so much. You. So are you. Have a good day. All right. Thank All you right. very much. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.
You've been listening to All the Social Ladies with Carrie Kerfin, CEO of Likeable Media. You can follow Carrie on Twitter, at Carrie Kerfin. To get current social media insights and great tips, sign up for Carrie's weekly newsletter by emailing newsletter at likeable.com.